All right. Welcome once again to the Counter Vortex podcast with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Once again, dispensing with the opening music this week because I'm just too pissed off. Well, you know, here we are poised at the brink, uh, the very brink of fascism with, uh, you know, Donald Trump actually threatening to declare a state of emergency in this country. And if that isn't terrifying, I don't know what the hell is. And meanwhile, I still have no dial tone. It is now January 19th, and I have not had a dial tone since Election Day. That's the day that my internet and dial tone went out way back in um, early November. Yeah, we're talking about my landline, which I continue to depend on. And, you know, I'll have more to say about this later, but I do depend on it. And uh, I make no apologies for doing so. And my um, internet connection also goes over those same copper copper wires. A DSL connection, as I've ranted about before in previous episodes of this podcast, um, that is really the only option which is available to me other than uh, the stopgap measure of a, a cell phone hotspot, as it is called, which I have now been forced to use in, just in order to be able to get onto the web at all. But I can't stand it. I really, really, really hate it. More to say about that later. Uh, initially, I was told that um, service would be restored on December 31st. It was not. It's like a major cable outage. Lots of people in my neighborhood uh, have been cut off. You know, all the fellow dinosaurs in this neighborhood who were still relying on, um, on uh, copper wires. And that's quite a lot of dinosaurs, actually, because, um, as I've ranted before, Fios is not available in this area. So uh, we've all been out since um, since early November, and we were told that service was going to be restored December 31st. It was not. Then we were told, uh, or at least I was told uh, by Verizon chat, that it was going to be restored on January 14th. It was not. Then on January 14th, they told me it would be restored the next day, January 15th. It was not. Then they told me uh, that it was going to be restored today, January 19th. And today, a, um, a Verizon repair guy actually knocked on my door. And I was saying, well, this is certainly a sign of progress. And he promised me that my service was going to be restored by the end of the day. Okay, now it's 8.30 p.m. He knocked on my door at around noon. Now it's 8.30 p.m. and still no service. So, you know, what's going on here? I suppose maybe the fact that they actually sent a live human being repairman, maybe this is a little bit of countervailing evidence, hopefully. But what I have assumed is going on here is that uh, Verizon is waiting for me to die. They don't want to maintain the copper wires. I mean, this much is established. They've admitted that they don't want to maintain the copper wires. They want to get everybody on to cell phones so that they, well, I'll have more to say about why they want us all on cell phones so that they can spy on us all the time and so that they can, um, you know, stop having to maintain those copper wires. So, but meanwhile, I don't actually get a discount for the time that my service was out until after the service has been restored, right? So uh, it's obviously in their interest to just string me along forever 
and, uh, you know, keep me paying the full bill month after month after month. They can sit back and collect the money for doing nothing. And I'm going to continue to pay that bill on the assumption that eventually they're going to restore my service and they're just not going to restore my service. They're just going to wait me out until I die. I mean, it seems to me that's the game that they're playing here. So now they're telling me March, that it's not going to be restored until March. You know, when March comes along, they're probably going to be uh, kicking the can down the road yet further. And they're just waiting for me to die. Did I say that? That uh, after um, my service had not been restored about an hour ago now, now it's 8.30, like an hour ago, I got onto uh, the net and spoke to some Verizon chat jockey once again, and now he said that the new um, restore date is March 8th. So, uh, you know, once again, I reiterate my call to the uh, New York Public Utility Law Project to, um, you know, organize a class action suit against Verizon. All right, particularly in my particular neck of the woods in lower Manhattan, there are lots of people who are in the same position that I'm in. Maybe they aren't as intransigent as me about not using a cell phone, but they are dependent on a DSL connection on those copper wires because, as I say, Fios is not available in this area. So, once again, New York public utility law project when 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 do we organize the class action lawsuit and actually force verizon to comply with the law they are mandated by new york state law to provide me with a landline and they're obviously in violation of the law. Why? And obviously, I'm not alone, as you know, as I stated before. You know, we may be a dying breed, but there are still a few of us. There, there, there were, uh, even before my, um, my connection permanently went out back in November, you know, there were um, big community meetings which were held, which were officiated partially by um, my state assembly member, Carolyn Glick, of, you know, irate local downtown Manhattan residents who... Um, have been, uh, you know, strung along for months and months and months by Verizon, who was not providing them with service. And I, you know, I, I take my hat off to these people who actually showed up at a meeting and complained about it. Most people, they just take it lying down. They figure, okay, this technology is on the way out, and I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to kick up a fuss about it. Despite the fact that, you know, a, the fact that the um, technology is on the way out is itself utterly dystopian and again i'll have more to say about this later on in the rant and b verizon is mandated by new york state law to provide you with a landline i mean come on i just can't believe that i mean i i hate to use this word i really really do because i really don't like it when people use this word but I was going to say, and I guess I'll just come out and say, it, I can't understand that people are such sheep that they will just, you know, let Verizon walk all over them like this. You know, I want to have more faith in, you know, an informed public, <laughs> you know, that, that will rouse themselves and stand up for their rights, which is why, you know, I, I really don't like to use that contemptuous, condescending word, sheep. But it, it really, it, it, it fills me with despair the way people are just... Again, I'll have more to say about this later on in the rant. Acquiescing in their own oppression by not holding Verizon accountable and by abandoning their landlines. On top of all this, you know, here we are on the brink of fascism where, you know, 
As far as I'm concerned, Donald Trump is a real-life fascist. I was saying that ever since he was on the campaign trail back in, uh, back in 2016, that, you know, by any definition, you know, he fits all of the, you know, the basic criteria for a fascist. I've gone down the checklist before, and I'll just go down the checklist again. Ugly ultranationalism that seeks to correct perceived humiliation, xenophobia and demonization of the other, exaltation of the great leader, fetishization of violence, contempt for democracy, enthusiasm for military aggression, populism tinged with anti-Semitism, and rank anti-intellectualism. There you go. As far as I'm concerned, you know, that's the basic ingredients for a fascist leader, and they are all exhibited by Donald Trump. So I don't want to have any more debate as to whether Donald Trump is a fascist. Now, you know, he hasn't yet gotten away with imposing fascism. And that is due to, you know, the fact that we do have, uh, as, as deeply dysfunctional and uh, in many ways oppressive as it has become, uh, we still do have a, uh, you know, something of a democratic political culture in this country, uh, which has prevented Trump from actually imposing fascism. But now that, uh, you know, Trump is like, he shut down the federal government. He's instrumented this shutdown of, you know, the normal functioning of, of the bureaucracy or the deep state as he demonizes it. And, uh, and he's openly now talking about declaring a state of emergency so that he can build his fascistic border wall. Now, when we have a leader who, by any definition, is fascist, shutting down the normal functioning of the government and openly talking about imposing a state of emergency where he will essentially rule by decree. I mean, this is utterly, utterly frightening. I mean, people are acting as if, uh, you know, the federal government is going to be, uh, you know, up any day now. You know, it's it's been an illusion, which has been harder and harder to maintain as we've gone along. Now we're like more than three weeks into it. But, you know, I said from the very beginning, no, the federal government is down for the count. Trump has no intention of striking any kind of deal which is going to bring it back up again. He wants to create a state of chaos that he can exploit so as to impose his state of emergency and rule by decree and actually impose a fascist order in this country. I mean, you have to be blind not to see this. It's so obvious. The only thing which has been preventing him, and I'm absolutely convinced of this, the only thing that has been preventing him is that, you know, he still has some glimmer, some faint little glimmer of rationality in his mind, which is, you know, warning him that the bureaucracy is not going to go along with him if he tries to do it. And that, you know, even those elements of the bureaucracy, that is to say, basically, the security services, the intelligence establishment and the armed forces, uh, which you know, he's going to need their cooperation in order to get away with this. And he's not sure he's going to have that cooperation. You know, that is what um, has been has been slowing him down. That's what's been um, stalling his hands. But nonetheless, he's obviously considering it. You know, he's obviously weighing whether he, in fact, can get away with it utterly terrifying. I mean, we are literally poised right at the brink of fascism in this country right now. I'm not saying we're going to go over the brink. Hopefully we're not. 
But let's not have any illusions about what's really going on here. We indeed are teetering right at the very brink of fascism. And, you know, Trump and Verizon are basically playing the same game. (laughs) You know, Verizon with me is like, you know, kicking the can down the road and hoping that I'm going to, you know, give up on my landline and give up on my DSL connection. And Trump is like kicking the can down the road and hoping that the American people are going to give up on democracy and just accept that, you know, we're going to have a fascist leader ruling by decree. Just like Verizon is, you know, hoping that I'm going to just accept that I'm going to have to, uh, you know, rely on a cell phone for the rest of my life. So, uh, you know, here I am in this, uh, I feel like I should be with, you know, the country poised at the brink of fascism here. And me, you know, for better or worse, <clears throat> you know, being a, uh, an activist and a blogger and a journalist and uh, something of a public figure, although I certainly... Um, uh, taken a hit in terms of uh, my reach by this digital crap, which is supposed to extend your reach, but instead it has exactly the opposite effect of marginalizing you, unless you're a, uh, you know, a glad hander who plays to the crowd, because that's what the algorithm's like, and God knows I am not a glad hander who plays to the crowd, just the opposite. So uh, here I am, Right, you know, with the country poised at the brink of fascism and me, you know, being who I am and doing what I do, feeling like I should be in a fight or flight mode. And um, instead of, you know, being in, in a, you know, alert state of preparedness for when, you know, Trump finally does it and essentially suspends the Constitution for all practical purposes. Instead, I am in this, you know, endless, interminable morass of this energy draining struggle just to have the minimal access to the web and telecommunications that I need to be able to do anything at all. So this whole struggle with Verizon has just been uh, this distraction. I feel like all of my energy for the past two months and counting now which, you know, should have gone into my, my writing and my work and my activism instead, you know, is being sucked down into this black hole of, uh, you know, just having to, to, to battle Verizon just to be able to maintain web access. Utterly maddening. And what makes it even more maddening, okay, is that, you know, at least some people are outraged by what Trump is doing. <laughs> Even if people, you know, even if people are going to bait me as an extremist for saying that we're on the brink of fascism, and I believe that the case that we are is absolutely airtight. But, you know, at least some people are um, outraged by by Trump's shenanigans. But, uh, you know, nobody is outraged about, you know, the um, inexorable, quote unquote, progress. And boy, is that ever an inappropriate word? Is that ever a propaganda word? So-called progress of digital technology. Everybody takes that completely for granted. And it is ultimately a part of the problem. The same problem as Trump fascism being imposed on us. Because, you know, as I have ranted before on this podcast, this technology is inherently enabling fascism, okay? The totalizing propaganda environment of social media... It's a real paradox where now with the web, all of the media in the world is available to you. You know, if you really make the effort, as in fact I do on my blog, Counter Vortex, 
www.thepatriotsocialist.org. Every day, if you actually make the effort, you can get a very, very, very wide spectrum, a wider spectrum than ever possible before in human history of um, media sources from all around the world, different voices, different opinions, different perspectives. But instead, for the vast majority of web users, it is having exactly the opposite effect, where instead of, you know, broadening the uh, spectrum of sources and opinions that you are um, exposed to, it is narrowing them because, uh, you know, everything is available to you. But instead of seeing that, you're at the mercy of the Facebook algorithm that by its very nature entrenches groupthink. And more and more and more people aren't even bothering to get news from any source other than what appears on their Facebook feed. And the Facebook feed is, you know, determined by who your friends are and what you like, quote, unquote. So it is designed to keep your eyeballs by, you know, by giving you more and more opinion that uh, and more and more propaganda and memes and so on that you're going to like. And the more you like them, the more it shows you that stuff in a vicious circle. And it's all about Facebook making money. It's not about anything other than that. It's not about informing you. It's about Facebook making money. And, and by its very nature, it is a system which is designed to entrench groupthink. Now, there have been, you know, some in the outrage over the, uh, you know, electoral debacle in 2016 and, you know, the uh, evident complicity of Facebook in it. You know, Facebook is making some small measures to correct this by, uh, you know, actually attempting to uh, show you alternative viewpoints and so on. But, you know, it's definitely too little. And it's certainly way too late now that we're on the brink of fascism. Thank you very much, Mark Zuckerberg. And a, uh, a related aspect of this dystopia is where, you know, everything is just reduced down to little bite-sized memes and little blurbs that you can get on your Facebook feed or whatever other social media that you're using. Some of them even more ephemeral than Facebook, I understand. It's destroying our concentration spans and our critical thinking skills and making us more vulnerable to propaganda. And, you know, I mean, this has been proven through studies. It's been demonstrated through studies that, uh, you know, reading comprehension is degraded when you read online. And it should just be so obvious that, you know, when everybody's just sharing memes back and forth and just taking in these uh, you know, easily digestible um, little propaganda pieces instead of actually doing any real in-depth concentrated reading, it should be obvious what I'm saying. I don't know why it's controversial. I don't know why anybody argues with me about it. I mean, to me, it's just so obvious on the face of it. And, you know, people tell me that, uh, okay, well, we've had fascism before. There wasn't any internet back then. Well, you know, it's been well established that Hitler exploited radio in his coming to power. And uh, fascism today is exploiting the net. Obviously, fascism is going to exploit whatever um, media of propaganda is available. So, uh, and, and everybody, you know, acknowledged back in the 1930s that, you know, this new thing which had just come on the scene, radio, was um, enabling the rise of Hitler. And he very, very deftly exploited it. But what I would argue the, um, the difference is, is that... Um, 
the internet more intrinsically loans itself to propaganda. Or at least it loans itself to propaganda with far more subtlety and sophistication than radio. Okay, it is a, uh, a an instrument for totalizing propaganda that far outstrips anything that Hitler and Mussolini could have expired to back in the day. Now, of course, I have a dialectical understanding of technology. You know, I understand that it's all a double-edged sword. Now, I passionately love radio. Okay, I miss the hell out of doing radio as I did for 20 years in New York City on WBAI. And one of the things that drives me nuts about the um, the digital revolution, quote, again, a propaganda word, it really isn't a revolution, but a devolution, de-evolution, <clears throat> uh, is that, um, you know, it's, it's making radio obsolete. And, uh, you know, whereas when I was actually, you know, broadcasting on WBAI on a radio signal, emanating from the uh, the top of the Empire State Building, you know, I was reaching easily many hundreds of people every night, probably thousands of people every night, even though I was on on a weekday night at midnight. This is New York City, the city that never sleeps, biggest metropolitan area in the country, and the radio wave was reaching that entire metropolitan area. I have no doubt that I was reaching almost certainly thousands of people every night. Now, you know, that I am podcasting, you know, I'm lucky if over the course of... Um, of several weeks, any of my podcasts have even reached 100 listens. So I am extremely nostalgic for radio. I'm not here to diss radio, okay? But I also recognize that, you know, like all technology, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. And I'm not saying, <clears throat> you know, the, the sort of the, the, the vulgar, degraded um, version of this concept is that any technology can be used for good or evil. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there are certain aspects of the technology which are inherent, which loan themselves to good or evil, if you will. And, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, radio, I mean, but what the Pacifica Network did for uh, for all of those years before its recent demise, it continues to exist in name, but as far as I'm concerned, it's really dead at this point. You know, what the Pacifica Network did for all those years from its founding in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War until, you know, certainly its intellectual demise <laughs> um, uh, over the course of the past 10 years or so. What Pacifica did for all of those years was great. I mean, without a doubt, you know, it had a very salubrious effect on the general social climate. And, uh, you know, when you actually had this, uh, you know, model of listener support and listener engagement, uh, that the Pacifica Network was founded on, you know, as opposed to, you know, the Hitlerian model of just using radio as a sledgehammer to beat people over the head with with propaganda, uh, you know, it actually, uh, it, 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 it was a good thing. Um, and similarly, as I acknowledged earlier with the internet now, if you really make the effort you can do, and <clears throat> forgive me for tooting my own horn, what I do on countervortex.org, where, you know, I follow struggles for human rights and democracy and um, ecological survival and cultural survival for indigenous peoples, et cetera, all over the world. And, uh, you know, and actually rely on local media. And, you know, I can actually uh, read the local newspapers in Mexico and Colombia and Peru because I happen to 
you know, understand Spanish. I can actually access those papers on, you know, a, uh, on, on a daily basis just by getting onto the web, which, of course, you know, when I was writing about this stuff 25 years ago, you couldn't do that. And, you know, similarly, even though, uh, well, Spanish is the only language other than English that I really have any fluency in, but nonetheless, you know, I can kind of fudge it in other Romance languages, and, um, and a lot of stuff has been even, you know, local... Uh, local media in you know, far-flung places around the world, uh, you know, has now been translated into English. And I can get online and actually, you know, read websites which are um, produced by people in Mongolia or China or Vietnam or whatever I'm writing about, uh, or, you know, the Arab world, etc. The African continent, where, where English and French are actually very widely used, of course, thanks to the legacy of colonialism. Um, you know, you can actually get online and you can read that stuff. And... Um, and, and again, if you really make the effort, you can actually use Venet to broaden your horizons. And, and that is inherent to the technology. I, I absolutely recognize that, okay? It's inherent to the technology. But the, um, the tendency to also degrade reading comprehension and critical thinking skills and, um, and, uh, and to degrade attention spans is also inherent to the technology and to the great literacy skills also inherent to the technology. And, uh, you know, for the, the vast majority of blogs out there and the most popular ones, <clears throat> the ones that people actually read as opposed to countervortex.org, which hardly anybody reads, and the ones which actually bring in a lot of money as opposed to countervortex.org, which brings in practically no money, you know, those are the ones which are, uh, you know, the most guilty of, um, of just uh, giving people dogmatism and propaganda and entrenching groupthink rather than, uh, you know, um, trying to inform people and shake up their assumptions and, uh, and, and make them think and make them challenge their assumptions and make them broaden their horizons. And again, this is also inherent to the technology. Also inherent to the technology, particularly with smartphones, is, uh, you know, the, uh, the totalizing surveillance where, you know, they, so to speak, and we don't even know exactly who they are. And in fact, there are multiple they's, you know, there are they's in the corporate world, in government, you know, different uh, corporations as well and different governments. Probably uh, both the CIA and the KGB are paying very close attention to me. <clears throat> they can follow everything that you are doing in real time. In real time, they know where you are, they know what you're reading, they know what you're buying, and basically that means that they know what you are thinking. They know what you're saying, reading, buying, everywhere you go. They know everything that there is about your life, including what you actually think. So utterly totalizing system of surveillance as well as an utterly totalizing system of propaganda. I just saw a piece of clickbait online <laughs> wetting my paranoia that uh, with the headline, is your smartphone listening to you or is it just coincidence? Where um, more and more people are reporting that targeted ads are appearing on their phones on the basis of spoken conversation in the proximity of the phone. Where you don't even have to actually input anything, but it's actually listening to your conversation and picking up, you know, keywords or key phrases and targeting the ads that way. 
And, uh, you know, some people tell me that, uh, that that I'm paranoid, but I'm hearing about this more and more and more. And even, you know, my uh, technical um, troubleshooter and uh, the producer of um, this podcast, uh, Chris Rywalt, who, you know, generally tries to abate my paranoia and bring me back down to earth about such matters. Even he has acknowledged that there actually is something to this theory. And the fact is, you know, that even, I mean, this is just a clear reality. Even if it isn't happening yet, it's going to be happening soon. I mean, the technology is just, you know, racing headlong in this direction. So even if uh, this is not in place yet, you know, it's a matter of minutes. It really is. It's a matter of minutes before it's going to be here. And, uh, you know, this is far more advanced in the uh, the so-called social credit system, which is being um, imposed now in China, where uh, your future prospects for employment, for access to education, or even for not being detained by the security forces are based on your online activity, which is being monitored all the time. And, you know, once again, I look at this development that's happening in China and I don't think, oh, isn't it wonderful that we don't have to worry about that here in the United States because we live in a democracy? No, I think that, you know, this same crap is coming soon to the U.S. of A. And uh, clearly, you know, I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that people in the, uh, the you know, the FBI and Homeland Security uh, have been, you know, sitting down with the people in um, Verizon and whatnot, and have been, you know, okay, how can we implement a similar system here in the United States? There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that these conversations have taken place. I mean, there was a big to-do a few years back uh, when uh, word came to light of these so-called convergence centers, where in the name of anti-terrorism, you know, the uh, captains of the telecommunications industry were actually meeting with, uh, you know, the FBI and Homeland Security and so on to... um, talk about, you know, tracking extremism online and so on. Well, obviously, they've also made note of what is happening in China, and they are clearly exploring the possibilities of eventually instating such a a system here. I mean, you know, it's been said again and again that uh, China has sort of been using Xinjiang, the the homeland of the Uyghurs out in the far west of the country, you know, a Muslim ethnic minority, which clearly the Chinese state is, you know, very much afraid of. And, uh, you know, they've been really imposing these totalizing police state measures, you know, tracking the uh, movements of the populace in real time and so on in Xinjiang. And it's been understood that, you know, Xinjiang is sort of a... um, a laboratory for uh, methods that they are going to uh, impose nationwide in the rest of China. Well, similarly, you know, I think that the leaders of the United States and the European Union and Russia and so on are, uh, you know, looking to China itself as a laboratory for the same kind of methods of, uh, of uh, you know, digital social control that they want to impose worldwide. So, you know, I look at this, uh, you know, so-called social credit system which is being imposed in China and you know I see this as you know something which you know, it's just a matter of time there's a certain sense of inexorability to it you know the technology itself has uh, you know developed its own momentum in this direction it's going to be imposed on um, on the rest of us at some point unless there is some kind of worldwide reaction unless there are you know certain practical measures which are taken by the populace to resist it and I will talk a little bit more later about what I mean by that. And no, I am not actually calling for, um, you know, 
armed resistance or, you know, armed militancy, anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'll talk more about what I'm actually talking about. But meanwhile, I want to, you know, just to make that clear, since I know the FBI is listening to this. <clears throat> but before I get to that, you know, I just want to point out, you know, the fact that now with my DSL connection out and my, uh, my phone line down, this crap is being foisted upon me. Okay, I have been, you know, literally a, a cell phone, which I swore that I was never going to have. You know, I it, one has been foisted upon me by um, by circumstance. And, you know, and essentially I would be completely cut off from the human race if I did not break down and accept the cell phone, which I will confess, you know, my family, that is to say my my parents and my um a uh, wealthy businessman brother <laughs> said, no, we can't have you, um, you know, inaccessible. You're getting a cell phone, whether you like it or not. And that's literally what they said. And I guess I'm glad that they did because, you know, if they didn't, I wouldn't have been able to get any work done since early November. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks, Matt. Thanks, mom and dad. <clears throat> but at the same time, you know, it feels like it gives me a sense of creeping paranoia, or at this point I would say galloping paranoia, as well as a sense of personal humiliation that, um, you know, that this, you know, a cell phone has been foisted upon me. You know, I have prided myself on being a lone holdout. You're one of the few, you know, holdouts which are left, certainly in Manhattan Island, who, um, you know, insist on maintaining a landline and not having a cell phone. And everybody else just seems to accept that this technology is inevitable. And not only, you know, that resistance is futile, which is kind of my attitude to Facebook at this point. I recognize Facebook is totally dystopian, but nonetheless, whenever I'm home, I'm on it. Not when I leave the house. When I leave the house, even now that I have a cell phone, I don't take the cell phone with me. When I leave the house, I am completely offline. But, you know, I use Facebook as much as anybody because I kind of have to. You know, I kind of, you know, for, for my work, for promoting my website and getting information and reaching people, I have to use it because everybody else does. So with Facebook, I kind of have, you know, this attitude of resistance is futile. You know, it's the Borg. But uh, for everybody else out there, you know, uh, they seem to think that even, you know, resistance to having a cell phone is futile. And it isn't even, you know... It's not even the notion that resistance is futile, but that the notion of resistance itself is not even entering their consciousness. The notion that this is something which we should be resisting is not even on their radar screen, to use a technical metaphor, although a pre-digital one. <clears throat> Everybody just sort of accepts that it's inevitable and that not only that resistance is futile, but they don't even see the point in resisting it. This is what I really, really don't get. It is so obviously, so monstrously dystopian and nobody even sees the necessity to resist it. So, you know, this is um, the dystopia which we are now lurching into headlong on this planet is one which um, actually combines the worst elements of both um, 1984 by George Orwell and Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. It's um, the total surveillance, total social control, and total propaganda of 1984. The telescreens are here. 
it doesn't look exactly the way that George Orwell writing back in um, 1948, because famously he just reversed the last two digits of the year that he was writing in. You know, Orwell writing way back in 1948, of course, wasn't capable of envisioning exactly what it was going to look like. But in effect, in practical effect, your cell phone is a telescreen. Okay, it is, it is that degree of surveillance. And I understand you bringing us even closer to the uh, telescreens. I was just told, in fact, that, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, your new smart TV is also similarly spying on you. And all of these, you know, devices that you have in your house, you know, your your laptop, your cell phone, your smart TV, they're all interacting with each other and sharing information with each other. So you can just see this net coming into place, you know, again, totalizing surveillance and totalizing propaganda. Uh, so that's the 1984 aspect of it. The Brave New World aspect of it is that um, we accept it because it is sold to us as consumerism and sold to us as something that we want and something that we are choosing, quote, unquote, rather than something which is being imposed upon us by a tyrannical government, as in, you know, the cruder dystopia of uh, George Orwell's 1984. So, uh, you know, it has the, the worst aspects of both of those dystopian novels written way back in the era of fascism, Brave New World in 1984. You know, the, the, the totalizing surveillance and propaganda environment of 1984, but as in Brave New World, uh, it's uh, actually making us complicit, making us utterly complicit in our own oppression. And it's something which we are going along with willingly because we have been conditioned. All right, so once again, you know, uh, all right, when I talk about um, practical action to resist the consolidation of the digital dystopia. All right, I'm not talking about, you know, these, you know, anti-tech yahoos like the Unabomber and John Zerzan. That is not my politics at all. And in fact, they have done a great disservice to the critique of technology by uh, giving it a bad name and wedding the critique of technology to this, you know, extremoid Yahooism about doing away with literacy and agriculture, which is utterly not where I'm coming from. In fact, you know, I perceive precisely that this technology is a threat to literacy. And you know, the digital technology is a threat to literacy, much as, uh, you know, um, designer seeds and Terminator technology and so on, uh, uh, you know, being designed by, you know, Monsanto and um, and the big um, biotech companies is a threat to agriculture. So, uh, you know, uh, agriculture and um, and literacy are precisely the things that I want to preserve. And I don't want to do away with civilization. I want to preserve civilization. OK, thank you very much. My critique is more of a uh, if you want some names to throw out stuff that you can read, you know, my critique is more of a. Um, uh, uh, Murray Bookchin, Leopold Kaur, Vandana Shiva, Jane Jacobs, Lewis Mumford, that kind of critique. Uh, you know, there is no easy answer to the technology dilemma. And I'm not here calling for, um, you know, smashing technology. <laughs> I'm calling for smashing capitalism and uh, ultimately smashing the state. <laughs> through, um, hopefully through nonviolent direct action. But uh, I'm not calling for smashing technology, but I am calling for resisting the so-called 
progress of technology and um, developing a dialectical critique of the technology. And um, a part of, um, of that resistance has got to mean keeping alive the print world. I mean, you know, it would be great if we could just abolish the Internet, but I recognize, you know, that's just, it's not a realistic demand, at least not at this moment in history, right? But, but what I believe is practical action that we can take is keeping alive the print world. Support your local printed newspaper and actually sit down and read it once in a while. And um, similarly, keeping alive, you know, the meat world, actually, you know, holding protests in real life and actually, you know, holding uh, meetings and building community in real life, not just in, you know, this um, disembodied world of cyberspace. And um, keeping your landline, okay? If you are in the same position as me, where you have a landline and uh, Verizon, wherever your provider is, is not maintaining those copper wires, stand up and fight and demand that they maintain those copper wires and give you the service that you are entitled to by law in New York State. And I think probably in many other states. Okay? Get up, stand up, stand up for your rights for a landline. Stand up for your right to a landline. That's what I say. So uh, once again... You know, I'm not calling for a great purge, but I am calling for a step back from the brink and noting that we are on the very brink. We are on the brink of fascism. And the most, you know, clear, evident, uh, in-your-face way that we're on the brink is, you know, we actually have a real fascist sitting in the Oval Office threatening to declare a state of emergency. The more subtle and the more insidious way that we are on the brink of fascism is, you know, through this digital technology, completely colonizing our lives and consciousness, okay? And that also needs to be resisted, okay? We need to at least take a step back from the brink by keeping alive the print world, keeping alive the meat world, and keeping the landlines going, maintaining those damn copper wires. So once again, I uh, call upon the New York Public Utility Law Project, when, when, when do we organize the class action lawsuit against Verizon? This needs to happen urgently. Please get in touch with me, New York Pulp, Public Utility Law Project. We need to get going on this. It is urgently mandated. And, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> Verizon, if you're listening, and I know you are <laughs> because you're a big brother and you're listening to everything. How about, uh, you know, actually following through on your promises and um, following through on your responsibilities under New York state law and restoring my landline and my DSL connection? OK. And um, if you're listening, my um, New York State Assembly member, Carolyn Glick, uh, you know, you went to bat on this issue by organizing a community meeting to deal with it. Well, Community meetings aren't enough. Now it's time, once again, for practical action. So uh, I urge you all who I have called out and all the rest of you who are listening to this, you know, all five or six of you who are going to listen to this podcast who I haven't called out, be in touch and let me know what you think. We urgently need to jumpstart a conversation on this question. This has been Bill Weinberg on The Counter Vortex. Check us out online, countervortex.org. Rant on you next time. Join the resistance.